Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, we know from Camilla, the wife to the heir of the throne, uh, that Joe Biden has difficulties with flatulence on high state occasions. We know from sources close to His Holiness the Pope that Joe Biden had a toilet incident in the Vatican, which detained His Holiness rather longer than had been scheduled as they sought to put the President of the United States back together. During the week, for a brief period, he was no longer the President of the United States. That high office passed to a woman who got less than 1% of the Democratic Party's vote in the primaries when she ran in the presidential primaries just a couple of years ago. She was, for a minute or two, an hour or two, the most powerful person in the world, elected by nobody and trusted by only 27% of the American public. Joe Biden's ratings are low, but nowhere near as low as his vice president and putative successor, if he has to go under the knife again, or if indeed he's held under the US Constitution to be no longer a fit and proper person to exercise his high responsibilities, which from where I stand can only be a matter of time. And as we heard from Garland Nixon last week, she then gets to pick her own vice president. If it's an unelected person, they have to pass muster in the U.S. Senate, apparently. That probably rules out Hillary Clinton, who might otherwise have fancied the job. But would it rule out Mrs. Obama? Yeah, you think that's left field? You should see some of the other suggestions. The Prime Minister of Britain, on the other hand, though he can scarcely scratch his backside when it comes to the great issues of state that Britain currently faces, the multiple crises, uh, the, as Mr. Macmillan said, events, dear boy, not one damn thing, but one damn thing after another, is now facing a police investigation into the matter of an American blonde bombshell, a Miss Jennifer Arcuri who was, it seems clear, a mistress of Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London. That would be a matter for him and whichever wife he was married to at the time, ordinarily, and I wouldn't be bringing it up. Except it is a matter of public record that Miss Arcuri received vast sums of money from the public purse in London, to which 
she may not have been entitled. Moreover, was flown to trade fairs across the world with the mayor in the airplane with her, not necessarily sharing a hotel room with her. I wasn't there, don't know, and don't much care. But the police are interested in whether all of this constituted corruption. Now, on the scale of British government corruption, it's very small beer indeed, though it is a six-figure sum, a high six-figure sum. On the track and trace uh, fiasco that Britain faces, more than £32 billion have been, as he would put it, faffed up against a wall. People have been given contracts for things that they had never done before. And those people, coincidentally, turned out on an embarrassing number of occasions to be previous high-level donors to the Conservative Party. Some of them turned out to be relatives of Conservative ministers. Some even relatives of the actual minister in the Department of Health giving out the contracts. The sleaze allegations against the Conservative government and Boris Johnson's premiership would take me all night to adumbrate. Everybody, I think, knows that billions of pounds of British taxpayers' money was spent at least criminally negligently and at worst criminally. And one day, the accounts will have to be settled on these things. But that would just be one damn thing if that's all that Boris Johnson was facing. In fact, it's one damn thing after another. He was at it again today, booming uh, like a boisterous show pony, as uh, Tom Gallagher put it on social media today. Professor Tom Gallagher, a man of the right, a conservative, who has been remorseless in his critique of Boris Johnson's premiership. He was booming today, was Boris. Booming uh, about some woke issue or another, the need to get more women into public office. Well, he might have to make way soon on that front to one of several women vying for his position. Last week, he was zipped up in a polar bear suit not hugging a husky, becoming a husky, as he lectured the rest of us of how we'll have to shower in cold water and get used to a colder Britain because we can't afford boilers. We'll have to pay £20,000 each in order to replace it with something he called a heat pump. No evidence that heat pumps actually work at least as well as a boiler and no clue as to how ordinary people in Britain are going to afford £20,000 all in the interests of greenness, save a husky. He thinks that that is the profile of a Conservative Prime Minister. But conservatism is judged actually by other things. And one of the things that it's judged by is whether or not it is securing our border. As I said 
I hope forcefully last week, Britain now has military forces in Poland defending the Polish frontier, while our own frontier is pierced by thousands of people every single week. In one day last week, more than 1,200 people in a single day. Some of them end up under supervision of a kind in a three-star hotel. Three-star hotels all over the country are now full of them, but many of them evade those who would take them to a three-star living and make it into the general population. Nothing happens to them. They are never found. They are never returned. They are never deported. Last year, only five people who arrived illegally into Britain from the European Union were deported. Five people out of 20,000 people. Five were returned. And of course, even when they fess up as the would-be massacre of the innocents at the Liverpool Women's Hospital last week, almost discovered, almost discovered in an event of mass destruction. Even when they fess up and apply for asylum and are then refused asylum, seven years later, they're still here. And in the case, I'm not going to say his name, I won't glorify it in any way. In his case, the man who blew himself up in a Liverpool taxi had even been arrested and sectioned under the Mental Health Act for running around the streets of Liverpool with a large machete in his hand. Even then, he wasn't deported. He was allowed to go through a farcical conversion to Christianity to make it more difficult to deport him back to the Middle East, where, of course, you're not allowed to leave Islam and convert to Christianity. So, ipso facto, you'll have to allow me to stay here because, hey, I've become a Christian. Although many reports suggest he was actually with that bomb, originally intending to attack Liverpool Cathedral, where he supposedly converted to Christianity. He was on his way to blow it up. Such were the strength and commitment to Christianity. So this is the crisis, above all, that will do for Boris Johnson. You cannot be a conservative prime minister and shrug that you can do nothing about thousands and thousands and thousands of people you don't know, mainly young men of fighting age. In the case of the Polish frontier, I can tell you with absolute accuracy, the vast majority of the would-be migrants on the Belarus-Poland border are not fleeing our bombs. They're Kurds from Iraq. There have been no bombs 
on Iraqi Kurdistan in more than 30 years. In fact, Iraqi Kurdistan is a Western protectorate. Whatever else it is they're fleeing from, in Iraqi Kurdistan, it's not bombs. It's not war. Because in Iraqi Kurdistan, there has been no war. They're fleeing Iraqi Kurdistan because they want a better life in Europe. Why they want to come to Britain, I'm not quite clear. I was just talking to our editor outside who made the point to me that benefits in the European Union for such migrants claiming to be political refugees is actually higher than it is here. Maybe it's our weather they're coming here for. Maybe it's our Hagahusky government that they would like to live under. But whatever the reason, the great majority of people fleeing France and Belgium are not under any threat in France or Belgium. Now for clarity, let me make clear, every country has a moral and legal right to take its fair share of refugees. It is outrageous that Italy and Greece and Spain are having to take far more refugees than countries who did far more to destabilize the world, like the United States and Britain. But we can't do it in this nihilistic way of whoever can get on a 50-foot rubber dinghy and evade the customs people on the beach can melt into the British population, not least because some of them probably a tiny handful of them, may have come here to hurt us, like the man that blew himself up in a Liverpool taxi. Others, again, a tiny handful of them, may become involved in crime, as happens from time to time, as will happen in the environs of these three-star hotels to which these people have been distributed. And when, not if, that does happen, whatever kind of crime it is, there'll be trouble with the local population. And that trouble with the local population will cost Conservative MPs their seats. And I'm a living witness to the brutal nature of the Conservative Party in Parliament. I saw the defenestration of the great she-wolf herself, Margaret Thatcher, untouchable, the Iron Lady. They threw her, metaphorically speaking, from a third floor window, just as soon as they concluded that holding on to her would lead them into something worse. I saw the brutal way that conservatives tried to get rid of John Major, as mild a mannered an individual as you can imagine, was reduced to talking about the bastards in his own cabinet. His word, not mine. He famously talked 
of the bees in his own cabinet that were constantly seeking to overthrow him. In fact, he was comprehensively overthrown anyway in the 1997 general election and a very large number of conservative members of parliament had cause to rue the day that they didn't get rid of John Major earlier. And that's why I'm predicting to you that Boris Johnson will for not much longer be the Conservative Prime Minister of Britain because he isn't a Conservative at all. He's a Blairite, just like Keir Starmer, just like Ed Davey, who he, I hear you ask, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, the third party in Britain. This Blairite consensus, utterly woke, utterly green, every pronoun carefully enunciated, has no idea how to stem the flow of crises now engulfing the British government. He'll be gone next year if he isn't gone this year. That's my prediction. And this coming week, Ghislaine Maxwell, daughter of the late Robert Maxwell, the publishing magnate, the bouncing check, appears in court in New York. Well, the poll's going like a train. On all platforms, almost a thousand people have voted already. And we only launched it a couple of minutes ago. Is Ghislaine Maxwell A, innocent, 15%, B, guilty, 85%. And that's pretty typical across all three platforms, on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube, on my Telegram channel. There'll be an even healthier majority for a guilty verdict after my next guest. Kirby Summers is the inveterate investigative journalist and author, and she is the oracle on the Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein case. Kirby, thanks uh, very much for joining us again. Uh, kindly uh, describe what's going to happen in the court next week. What is she charged with and what's her defence? Well, thank you for having me again, George. Um, you know, this is the trial we have all been waiting for. It could go in any direction. Glenn Maxwell can plea at the last minute. She has, as you know, attempted to be released on bail multiple times with no success. Um, the trial date begins November 29th through January 6th. But this presents a problem, George, because there's going to be a Christmas holiday. So the jurors are going to be allowed to go home. But as you know, they can't be tainted, right? They cannot be tainted by mainstream media, but how, how is this going to be prevented? They're going to be with their family. They're going to be near mainstream media. What happens when you come back to, to the and resume the trial? It could be a mistrial. Was it intentional? It's very interesting because Joe Biden, who you talked about earlier in the show, has just decided, oh, well, guess what? Judge Judith Nathan, who has been presiding over the case of Glenn Maxwell, has now been selected to be on the United States Court of Appeal. Now, while 
Judge Nathan has made a public statement saying, hey, it's okay, I'm, I'm going to continue with the trial. I'm very skeptical of anything, Glenn Maxwell, frankly. I'm skeptical of anything, anyone getting a promotion that's connected to Glenn Maxwell in any way. I'm very cautious about that. So my interpretation is, is somehow Judge Nathan, who appears to be a lovely person, being thanked in advance for her, you know, participation. Um, let me just tell you very quickly that Virginia Dufresne, who is the person who has brought the lawsuit against Prince Andrew, will be in court standing against Glenn Maxwell. Is she a what prosecution witness, Kirby? She is a prosecution witness. She is not one of the four victims. She will be a, a witness. She will be expected to testify. But this is iffy because she's expected to testify about how Glenn Maxwell, what her role was in presenting her to Prince Andrew. Now, when she attempted to do that, in a courtroom, in her legal defamation lawsuit against Ghislaine Maxwell, which began in 2015, and Ghislaine settled it out of court so that she wouldn't talk anymore in 2017, the judge said, we're not going to allow you to talk about Prince Andrew. So will Judge Nathan, when Virginia Dufresne is called upon to talk about her relationship and her knowledge of Glenn Maxwell's crimes, because they're crimes against children. She was a minor. Um, will they toss it the way they tossed it before? There, anything can happen. Or they can turn around and say, oh, well, you know, we find her to be guilty of X, Y, and Z, but she has been in jail since June, no, July 2nd of 2020. So Maybe we're going to let Glenn Maxwell go home to her no-show-up husband. <laughs> he has not shown up, Scott Borgerson. And, and it's, you know, time served. Anything can happen in this case. What's her defense in summary? I mean, look, she's been um, charged with uh, sexual activity, criminal sexual activity against minors transporting a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, conspiracy, commit both of these offenses, and perjury. She has not, she has pleaded not guilty. She has offered the um, United States government who has brought this action against her, so it is on the federal level. She has not at any point in time requested, uh, you know, let I'll give you some names and you give me a deal. So no plea deal has been offered No, on either side. The prosecution, you know, the prosecution has not offered her a plea. She has not requested one. She continues to say she is innocent. But this said, George, I want you to know that she is playing. She's, she's attempting to portray herself and all of her father's friends in media, like, the Daily Mail and the Sunday, yeah, all of the UK papers with her friends, Daphne Barak, who is the cousin of the former prime minister, Israel, you know, Ehud Barak of Israel. She's been writing stories for the Daily Mail and showing up on mainstream media, talking to Isabel 
uh, Maxwell, who was Glenn's older sister, and also Ian Maxwell. Um, there has been all out PR campaign allowing Glenn to say to the world, oh, I play peekaboo with the guards. I have rats in my cell. I, I have an, a, a, an imaginary friend. She has named her imaginary friend. Wait a second. I have the name here. It's, uh, let's see. What has she named her imaginary friend? Well, I mean, the point is I can't find that note here. Um, that she is just trying to present herself as being crazy. So does she have a game plan? Does she hope that, that you know, they're going to say, oh, you, you sound really crazy? I, I don't know. Anything can happen with Glenn Maxwell. What about the black book? The prosecutors are trying to uh, get into the court evidence, uh, the contents of uh, Epstein's black book. What can you tell us about that? Well, having done as much research as I have and, and, and written the books that I have on Glenn Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein, the Black Book contacts are primarily, I would have to say, about 85% hers. Um, I, I cannot see anyone doing due diligence and not finding that those contacts are contacts that she made uh, via her father, Robert Maxwell, who was very well connected politically, as you know, and people she met um, who were the, the children of the very wealthy when she was at Oxford. So those contacts, there's no way that they're going to be able to say they were Jeffrey Epstein's. She was, I mean, she was pretty much in charge. The victims themselves will be saying in court that as much as they dislike Jeffrey Epstein, that it was Glenn who pushed them and who, um, chastised them and who tormented them and who scared them and who threatened them if they didn't do X, Y, and Z. Is this a jury trial or a judge-only yes. trial? Jury. The jury uh, was selected um, commencing the 15th of this month. It has already been done. So, so they're, they all, they're already in isolation from mainstream yes. media. Yes. They're, they're all selected. There are like 600 people. They By Monday, this past Monday, they narrowed it down to about 200 and something. Wow. And, uh, but ne yeah, there were a lot of people. Um, but they're ready. They're ready to go. Uh, but again, you know, what will happen? Anything can happen in this case. Are you expecting uh, rich and powerful people to be named in court, either by the defense or the prosecution? Well, it's interesting that you say that because it seems you and I are on the same <laughs> wavelength as always. Um, Judge Nathan has made a ruling stating that the non-prosecution agreement that was entered into with Jeffrey Epstein by Alexander Acosta, that this cannot be brought up in court. So that effectively means that they are not going to disclose those names, right? With the exception perhaps of Prince Andrew, if Judge Nathan does not say, hey, you can't talk about Prince Andrew, which they have done in the past because he's a protected and coddled individual. Uh, so if they have already said you cannot bring in the non-prosecution agreement, what they're basically saying is we're gonna keep this very tight on these four victims only for the period of 1994 
through 2001, so a very short period. Not all the victims, and and so no, I don't think they're going to allow them to do that. Um, it's going to be very tight. I know that one of uh, uh, Clinton's, uh, his very close confidant assistant was talked to by the prosecution. But guess what? I don't see him. You know, I get information as to who's going to be showing up in court. And by the way, the the attack dogs have already begun saying negative things about the witnesses and their stories, again, in the Daily Mail and the Sun, you know, all of these papers that have are pretty friendly with Glenn Maxwell, apparently. Um, well, the uh, the outgoing uh, editor of the Mail, Jordi Gregg, uh, has appeared in an extraordinary number of photographs looking extremely friendly with Ghislaine Maxwell. And he's just uh, announced that he's leaving, or the paper has announced that he's leaving. <laughs> any, any connection between these two things? I think so. I mean, the very same... So Daphne Barak, who is Ehud Barak's uh, cousin wrote this story, uh, I believe it was on the, could have been the 16th, it could have been the 17th. And, and you know, I went immediately on the air. I told everyone who she was. I'm like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe Jordan Gregg has allowed a hoop Barak's niece, like a cousin. Because you can't, like, if you look at the name Barak, at least those of us who are paying attention, we're going to say, well, who is she? So I went on her Twitter. She's, by the way, she has blocked me. I am persona non grata with all of the Maxwell siblings and with the Baraks and with the whole. So <laughs> I, I, I've been persona non grata with them for the last 30 years. Uh, oh, so I know, I know how you uh, feel. So if you were Prince Andrew, would you be hiding out in uh, Pizza Express in Woking uh, for the duration of this trial? Or do you think... He is in the clear, at least in this trial. For this trial, um, I mean, uh, nothing. I, I, I cannot see the United States bringing a case against him, although it would be lovely to see that. His trial, uh, frankly, begins soon. I'll tell you exactly when his trial begins. His trial begins uh, July of 2022. Uh, that is when Prince Andrew's attorneys, again, because he's not coming into the United States, will present to the judge, well, you know what, drop this case, dismiss it, because, and they're going to use this as the excuse. In 2009, Virginia Dufresne, um, kind of co coerced by the United States government with Jeffrey Epstein, Settle with her because it's a very, a very peculiar case where the United States government has basically not only given Jeffrey Epstein this non-prosecution agreement, but made a, a, a concerted effort to say, we're going to give you this non-prosecution agreement, but there are these victims and you have to settle with them. Now, that's very peculiar. I've never seen another case like it. I don't think anyone has seen a case like that. In 2009, Jeffrey Epstein settled the case against that was brought against him by Virginia Dufresne. One of the paragraphs in that settlement said, well, okay, we're going to settle. However, you may not uh, 
after my attorneys. Good for Alan Dershowitz, right? He may not come against my attorneys, my friends. So we have to figure out was was Prince Andrew considered a friend or a plus one? Remember, his skill is always plus one. My my employees or my business associates. Prince Andrew has been coached by Alan Dershowitz and his attorney, uh, another guy by the name of Andrew something or other, who's who also has a very long list of very despicable clients, is going to say, well, based on that uh, signed uh, waiver that Virginia Giuffre signed with Epstein in 2009, there's no here because Andrew is protected. That's what they're going to do. Finally, uh, Kirby, uh, if convicted, what punishment uh, might Ghislaine Maxwell face? If she were a normal person, it would be 40 to 80 years. Wow. Yes. Since she's Ghislaine Maxwell, I expect she's going to go home. Really? That bad, huh? How's your book? How's your book doing? Oh, my God. Thank you for asking. My book is doing very well. Thank you. Uh, I am now working on Ghislaine Maxwell Blackmail, the sequel to the first book. <laughs> and that's already selling pre-sell. And, you know, it'll be it'll be available in, in March. I'm working as hard as I can. Uh, but people love the book. And uh, but not the Maxwell's, though. You know? <laughs> they don't like it, for sure. They don't. In they fact, like their it. attorneys yeah, will be hanging on our conversation now. Yeah, absolutely. They are they're on us 24-7. Glenn Maxwell read my book because her sister Isabel purchased a copy straight from me. I offered Isabel because she pre-ordered from me directly before I had it on Amazon. And she pre-ordered it from me as a courtesy. I said to her via email, okay, Isabel, if you want to make a statement about anything, I'm happy to include it in this book. No answer. But on Twitter, they kill me. <laughs> did you, you sign it? Did I sign it? Did you sign? <laughs> did you sign the copy? I just I sent it to her. I'm like, here's your book, you know. But I did go to the jail, by the way. I went to uh, Galenis at the. Uh, the Brooklyn Metropolitan Detention Center in New York City. Yeah. And because I live in New York City, I took a couple of copies of my book, maybe a, a dozen. And I went to the I went to the jail and I had a friend there taking pictures. I'll send you some photographs. And I basically was offering the guards here. Here's a, here's a book free. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kirby Summers, uh, she's unlucky in having made an adversary like you. That is for sure. Thank you very much indeed once again for coming on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, the uh, poll is, is Ghislaine Maxwell A, innocent, B, guilty? You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube and on my Telegram channel. All kinds of people are responding to the poll uh, in social media. The Penguin says, that is a sickening question. I've no personal interest in this case, except justice being done. The defendant is innocent unless the jury finds her guilty. A principle democracies are founded upon. Well, sometimes. I just hope the jury listen to the evidence and make a decision based on the same. 
That's from Penguin Maxwell in uh, Oxford. Uh, Marek, uh, 2011, says she's about as innocent as Ronald Biggs. And Gurkster says, how could she be guilty until the outcome of a fair trial, even in the US? And Unbowed Surf says, I'm surprised she's still breathing so far. Uh, Jim Plunkett, terrible tweet. I like you, George, but as a topic for your radio show, have a think. Perhaps focus on the now 100,000 tweets trending in the UK, Johnson out. Well, funnily enough, Jim, I devoted almost all of my monologue to precisely that. And my next guest, Mark Seddon, former Labour grandee, now no longer with them, is going to talk about just that. I bet you feel a real plunker, Plunkett, now. Let's turn to Mark Seddon, former editor of Tribune, former Labour parliamentary candidate, former member of the Labour NEC, uh, former close friend of Michael <laughs> Foote, author and United Nations speechwriter for the General Secretary of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, a man of many parts and great distinction, as you'll see. Mark, welcome back to the George, mother of all George, you're very, you're very kind. There's a, an awful lot of former there, but... But thank you. Thank you very much. Good to see <laughs> you. Formers. We're all former. We're all former. We're all former. We're all soldiering on. Indeed we are. Uh, let, let's uh, not be partisan <laughs> here. Um, haven't the Labour Party got a bit of a cheek uh, talking about Tory sleaze, given that one Labour member of Parliament after another, one Labour councillor after another, has ended up in jail for one form or another of sleaze? Yeah, I suppose um, I suppose it could be a difference of scale. I mean, I can't think of any Labour MP who is doing quite so well as Sir Geoffrey Cox, the Tory, who is earning something like a million a year. And I'm just, I sometimes wonder if his constituents have been asked the question when he stood for election, you know, would you be happy if Sir Geoffrey spends half his time in the British Virgin Islands earning money defending defending people there as opposed to representing you, whether they might have voted for him? But no, you make a you make a good point, George, because, um, you know, the, I, I kind of worked out that that really the, the most antipathy in public life um, uh, from the media, from their peers in Parliament is often directed towards the sea green incorruptibles. And, and we can probably think of a few sea green corruptibles, there aren't many of them, but that's what they really hate. They really hate the sea green incorruptibles who won't like uh, Jeremy Corbyn or Chris Mullin or Dennis Skinner or any of these guys give grace and favor and if they have the power, put people in the House of Lords or whatever, or let them take second jobs, which brings me neatly on to the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, who, I imagine you were alluding to, George, who, who was actually uh, being paid also by a legal company, Mishcon Derea. Um, and when he became, uh, and when he was appointed to be a shadow Brexit spokesman, uh, clearly sought to continue this arrangement, um, but was told in no uncertain terms by Mr Corbyn, who was then leader of the opposition Labour Party, and by the shadow cabinet, he couldn't do it. So it did rather blunt his attack, um, on Boris Johnson. But overall, 
you know, in the great scheme of things, I mean, people will say, well, they're all the same, won't they? Um, but of course, some are worse than others. Yes, and the Tories have been in for 11 years and Boris Johnson was the mayor of London before uh, becoming prime minister. We'll have to talk about that unfortunate period also. Uh, um, but it was the great pity was not that uh, Jeremy Corbyn stopped Keir Starmer working for Mishcon Dorea, but that he gave him the job of shadow Brexit secretary in the first place. Uh, history might read rather differently uh, now. Um, but let's talk about Boris Johnson. It seems to me he's in big trouble now. Uh, the Mirror are reporting today uh, that the police are to become involved in the Jennifer Arcuri case. Tell us your observations on that. Well, again, uh, you know, this is, I, 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 you know, I was thinking about this today and, and really the gospel, according to Boris Johnson, uh, is to a degree his former editor, Max Hastings, who used to be editor of the Daily Telegraph, because he did provide a forewarning. I mean, he, in 2019, said um, Boris Johnson's premiership with, will almost certainly reveal a contempt for rules, precedent, order and stability. And just to rub salt in the wounds, he said, the Tory party is about to foist a tasteless joke upon the British people. He, Boris Johnson, cares for nothing but his own fame and glorification. I mean, it would appear that from the, with the, the incident of Jennifer Akuri, that uh, he was um, promising to help her in her career. Uh, in a way that has obviously got people sufficiently worried that he must be investigated further. So it does make you wonder. It also does make you wonder what he saw in Jennifer Akuri, by the way, too. But uh, yeah, I mean, this kind of casual attitude to uh, rules uh, has has been has been has been the, the whole story of Boris. Boris He's Johnson. been a bounder, a cad all of his life. In a former era, he would have been horsewhipped. Uh, by fathers-in-law, by uh, uh, aggrieved husbands, and so on. Uh, he's a charlatan. It does. It does look that way, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. Um, you know, you, you you make this comparison. You, you know, you don't have to have been around that long. I mean, I I remember, um, as you, you will remember better than me, uh, George Harold Wilson, a Labour Prime Minister, the most successful Labour Prime Minister in terms of winning elections. A very modest man, along with his wife, uh, Mary. Um, for what it's worth, I went along to an auction of his effects uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, I'll just uh, show you a few of your viewers. There's his, um, there's his tobacco pouch. Ah, oh, nice. Very well done. Uh, also, his, uh, the hat that he wore, <clears throat> uh, this is to, to rival yours. This is the hat that... Uh, the hat Harold that Harold wore. He wore it to meet uh, Mr Kasigin. And, um, and and Mr. Khrushchev in Moscow. How but anyway, wonderful. so I, I I sort of deviate a bit there because Harold Wilson um, represented, I think, you know, a kind of a standard in public life that we've lost. Uh, and you know, when Boris Johnson compares himself to Churchill, which he frequently does, he really uh, he can't really. It's stretching it, isn't it? It's stretching it enormously. The there is the, the hinterland is simply not there. And you know, also the, the, the just the, the, the lack that the ability to tell to say something, um, and to completely, completely turn on its tail within minutes. I mean, there's this extraordinary ability to tell lies. 
I mean, that's the shocking thing to a lot of people, I think. Yeah, although uh, having spent a long time in Parliament, I grew inured to that uh, practice. Uh, it's uh, almost a truism that you can tell they're lying if their lips are moving. Uh, but the, uh, the shocking mistakes that Boris Johnson is now making uh, will, I think, prove his undoing. For example, uh, the attempt to railroad the House of Commons away from uh, its judgment uh, that uh, a Conservative MP of some uh, importance had been guilty of rampant corruption, of lobbying, a vast, vast remuneration, government departments, uh, without having declared it. And if he'd been forced to take his medicine, maybe this sleaze issue would not be quite as sharp as it is now. I think that's undoubtedly true, George, because this particular former minister, Owen Patterson, who you mentioned, um, there, had, there was a degree of uh, sympathy in his very conservative uh, Shropshire constituency because his wife had committed suicide last uh, year. Um, they were not, they've clearly not impressed by the fact that he was taking money whilst being a, 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 a minister or a former minister and as a lobbyist. I mean, and, and to, to, to many of us, you wonder how it is that still after all of the sleaze that's been washing around politics, um, it is still possible to, to act as a lobbyist and to, uh, and to actually try and brazen it out. To be fair, the, you know, he was caught out. He was found bound to rights by the Committee on Standards. But then Boris Johnson, because the one, the one sort of principle he does have, it seems, is that he has got a loyalty to his mates, uh, was very keen then to come rip up this committee and, and fill it full of his placemen, rewrite the rules. I mean, it's quite incredible. It is absolutely incredible. He is, uh, as Mr. Macmillan said, now in the grip of events, dear boy. Events, it is one damn thing after another, as Mr. Macmillan also said. Uh, what's, your, uh, what's your betting on whether or not he survives? I earlier described how ruthless the Tories are with their leaders when they think that leader is going to cost them power or at least cost them their own seat. Is Boris' uh, jacket on a shaky nail now? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I looked at Max Hastings' article, who we were talking about a bit earlier, and in that same article, he suggested that this uh, joke, this bad joke, was going to be inflicted on the country for three or four years. And if he's accurate about that, then we've got perhaps another year of Boris Johnson. But look, I mean, at the end of the day, um, he got in because he was uh, a showman, he was an optimist, he promised to get uh, Brexit done because people were frankly fed up with it, and also they were fed up with the fact that they were being told that, a lot of them were being told that they got it wrong and they needed to vote all over again, not least by the current leader of the Labour Party. And of course, the other advantage that Boris Johnson has is that he faces a, a leader of the opposition who is useless, uh, and he's got other things in his favour, uh, the continuing uh, domination of Scottish politics by the nationalists and a border review, a border commission, a boundary commission, which is going to come out even more in their favour. So, I mean, I'm not I'm looking into a crystal ball yet. You're right. They're ruthless. Uh, and if the polls really do plummet, they show no sign of doing so at the moment. I mean, they've dropped, but it's not a plummet, but we'll see. Yeah, they'll get rid of him, I'm sure. But not yet. 
Uh, and, and of course, they will do it once they are fairly sure that they've found a, a Liz Truss or a Rishi Sunak or somebody who's going to be, a, you know, the, uh, the antidote to the boundary. <laughs> now, uh, finally, and uh, if you'll forgive me, it's a bit of a liberty, but as I've got you here, uh, your old party seems to be embarked on a madcap series of expulsions, very often of Jewish members, in the name of anti-Semitism. One of the most popular Liverpool councillors, Joe Bird, who was on the shortlist to be an MP recently, who was uh, on her way to being like you were on the National Executive Committee, just been expelled from the Labour Party. Almost every other day I read of a prominent Jewish member of the Labour Party being expelled. What's going on in Labour? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, I think quite clearly the General Secretary of the Labour Party uh, and the people around Keir Starmer, who are running Keir Starmer, are out of control. You simply cannot have, as you have uh, over the past couple of days, a senior party member being expelled for giving an interview to a left-wing paper that has since been banned by, by the Labour Party. This is retrospective. I mean, how can you be banned, A, for giving an interview, or B, for doing it before the paper was banned. This goes against all forms of any natural justice. And as a former DPP, again, Keir Starmer should know that is wrong and illegal. And to your point, George, about um, Jewish socialists, well, I, I've known a lot of them. I mean, a lot of the Jewish socialists I, I've known throughout, that I knew throughout all my years in the Labour Party were often very critical of Israel's policies in Palestine. And that appears to be what is being used to drive them out. And I find it, you know, I really do find it staggering. Well, yeah. I shouldn't find it staggering. Staggering uh, uh, that nobody pays any attention it. to it. Only exactly. D and me are actually saying, watching it. No, Graham no. Bash had been in yeah. the Labour Party and I'd known him throughout it for 50 years. Just expelled, just like that. I know. And, uh, A prominent you know, Jewish you, you, socialist. George, you, you were saying just then, you know, um, who, who is paying any attention to this? If you recall, um, you know, if, if this was under Corbyn's watch, we wouldn't be hearing the end of it. But there's a kind of a news blackout. I kind of expect it in The Telegraph and the rest of these. The Guardian? BBC? Why? I mean, there's a fundamental uh, injustices going on on a very substantial scale. These aren't just one or two people whose faces don't fit or have broken the rules. This is 
anybody who disagrees. It's a purge. <laughs> it's a purge. It is, well, that's it. It is an absolute purge. And you have to wonder at the end of the day uh, where it stops, because the logic of it is that it doesn't stop. No, it goes, well, I, I, to be honest, Mark, I don't know why MPs. any of them are bothering. Uh, if, if a party doesn't want you that much, <laughs> that it's prepared to rip up the law, common sense, uh, electoral prospects, uh, right off Liverpool and so on, then you'd be as well out of it. That's my view. Mark Seddon, as always, a statesman-like tour of the horizon. Thank you very much indeed for Thank joining you. us on the mother of all talk shows. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate, great. And I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than, more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? Wait, what? The Chinese tennis player, Peng Shui, of whom I'd never heard before this weekend. Isn't it amazing how so many commentators have become tennis buffs? No, Chinese tennis buffs over the disappearance of Feng Shui. I actually watched I watched the BBC News tonight in which it said that the footage of her at a dinner with her family was carefully staged with clumsy attempts made to establish the date. I watched it with my own eyes and then I watched the head of the International Olympic Committee having a Zoom conversation with her. And now the whole world has just watched her at a tennis competition. So she hasn't disappeared. She hasn't been disappeared. The footage wasn't staged. But what I'm wondering is why the BBC, with this sea of troubles that exist in our own country, thought that six minutes on a Chinese tennis player, Feng Shui, was more important than, hey, thousands of people arriving on the beaches in our own country. The Prime Minister under criminal investigation for scratching back in exchange for them scratching, well, somewhere else. Meghan Markle has the support of about a quarter of our respondents. What's wrong with you people? Meghan Markle for president, yes, 22% on Twitter, no, 78%. But on YouTube, yes, 29%, no, 71%. On Telegram, yes, they're always most sensible on Telegram, yes, 13%, no, 87%. I just, I'm speechless, I'm breathless, I'm absolutely breathless. Uh, Marek says, breathless Mahoney, uh, not a chance. She doesn't have the support of her party. Does she have a party? Uh, Jerry says, it would be better than anything we've got. <laughs> That's a sad truth. And Wayne Garnish says, I voted yes, just to see Piers Morgan go mad. Very good. 
I see Adele has now earned the enmity of uh, Piers Morgan. He's always going to war with these women. Now he's at war with Adele. Uh, Derek Chadwick says, the Duchess of Disney, I think not. And Steve says, an improvement on the current incumbent, but still a no from me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Steve. You're saying that Meghan Markin is an improvement on President Biden? You're probably right. Uh, Graham Lang says, oh, no, that's too rude. I'm not reading that one, Graham. And Alice says, hell, why not? She married a prince. It's next on the to-do list. And the lady of the green kirtle says, now, this is the best tweet of the night. She's not allowed to run for president because she's related to Napoleon or something. I saw it in the news. Probably a good thing. My lady, that wins tweet of the night. Meghan Markle is related to Napoleon? Who knew? Uh, anyway, you can vote. <laughs> Lots of people are uh, now uh, voting. Um, Andrew Marr leaves the BBC to get his voice back right. Of course, having a flagship show every Sunday morning on the BBC is the equivalent of losing your voice. But the one and only Rachel Blevins has not only not lost her voice, she's found her voice. She's got a blue tick now on Twitter. She's headed, unlike Meghan Markle, for political office in due course. At least that's my point of view. Remember her name, Rachel Blevins, who joins me now, my colleague on RT who normally asks me questions, but on a Sunday, occasionally, I get to ask her. Uh, Rachel, thanks for joining us. Uh, a question, first of all, about the trial that one of the callers from Idaho just raised. He gave a paean of praise uh, to the acquitted man. Uh, it's only fair I take a second opinion on that. What did you make of, the, uh, of Kyle, is it Rickenhouse, his truck? Rittenhouse. Yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah, okay. you know, this was this was a trial that was incredibly polarized. And I think it's one of those things where in order to understand it, you have to also understand all of the media coverage of it. Because from the moment that it happened back in 2020, there was live footage that was put out on social media. People were sharing it left and right. And they were kind of referring to this kid as a vigilante, saying that he showed up you know, with a gun to this protest, he was going into this tense environment and they were rightfully critical of that. And, you know, I, I know that it's one of those things that is kind of American centric and a lot of people around the world look at the United States and they scratch our heads. Why. Right, right. And I understand, you know, in terms of whenever it comes to guns, it's very different here. Society is very different here. And at least from his testimony, he testified that he was going to protect businesses in an area that his father was from because he said that the police had not been stepping up and that the business owners there were concerned about their businesses being looted because they knew that there were going to be protests going on in the city. Now, if we're going to sit here and argue about whether or not it was a smart decision for him to be there with a gun, we could do that all day long because... I don't think there's any kid who should be in that situation at all. However, when it came to the court case, when it came to what the jury was actually deliberating on, 
they were determining whether or not he acted in self-defense whenever he killed two men and wounded a third. Now, when it comes to the video footage, you can see the ways in which he was attacked by at least two of those men. And, you know, I think it's one of those cases where a lot of people want to sit and argue, was he a smart kid? Should he have been in that situation in the first place? But at the end of the day, when it came to the jury, they were arguing as to whether or not he was acting in self-defense. Now, should we sit here and, you know, praise him as a hero? I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but I do think that it is a good lesson when you look at the media coverage of it because it was spun so many different ways and it was used by everyone to sort of push their own platform, their own agenda, instead of actually looking at the facts of the case and, you know, looking at what it was from the moment that it started. At least that's my take on it. He was uh, repeatedly maligned, uh, not least by the president of the United States and multiple television uh, hosts and uh, column uh, writers uh, and journalists. Uh, the word is that he's now on the hunt to clean up on the libel front. Is that, uh, is that likely to happen in your view? I could definitely see him filing some lawsuits, absolutely. I mean, in the days after this happened, Facebook actually took down the live footage from the shootings that were carried out, they took it down and they labeled him a mass murderer. And so automatically what Facebook was doing was they were informing all of the members on their platform, hey, this guy is a mass murderer when he'd never even been to trial yet. And so I could see that going not only against big social media platforms, but also a number of people in the media. Like you mentioned, there were people who even to this day have said things about his character that weren't true, have said things about the situation that weren't true, and have really tried to capitalize on the frustration from their audience of saying, why does this so often happen? Or saying, you know, he wouldn't be in this situation if his skin was a different color. Now, we could also sit there and argue that all day long. But the fact is, these are the results of, you know, the court case that he went through. Well, speaking of color, the, the British media, at least in the independent newspaper, they actually turned the victims from white into black because it suited their agenda that this guy had shot two black men, three black men, when in fact none of the people he shot were black. They were all white. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's exactly how this goes. They turn it into saying that, you know, he's racist or they try to come up with his motive or they try to say, you know, that he was going there to kill people. And, you know, I know here in the United States, like, I am someone who in the state of Texas, I am licensed to carry a handgun. And I know that from specifically the people I've talked to and I've learned from, you do not use your weapon unless you are in an incredibly serious situation. Now, if you want to argue that this kid was 17 years old and that he may have not had the mental fortitude to be able to make those situations, then you can argue that. However, in the situation that he placed himself in and with the guys who attacked him, those were the decisions that he made. And I think so much of that is left out from the media and their coverage of it. Well, now that I know that you carry a handgun, uh, I, shall, <laughs> uh, I shall proceed more cautiously uh, in uh, future. Uh, now, you've just finished one big court case. You've got another big court case uh, this coming week with Ghislaine Maxwell. Any coverage of that? You know, it's interesting, sort of the silence on that that we've seen so far, and maybe that will change over the next week. It is also interesting how they place it right around the major holidays. You know, they kind of just slip it in there as if people will forget about it and move on. And in fact, I they're going was... to break the trial up 
the jury are all going to go home for the Christmas holiday and then come back uncontaminated by friends, family, and mass media? Yeah, it, it, there, that's just one of countless questions that come out of this. And, you know, when it comes to the coverage of it, I thought it was interesting that we actually heard from Boris Johnson's own sister who was speaking out and saying that he had been friends with Ghislaine back in the day and that she actually felt sorry for Ghislaine because she had gone from being this high-profile socialite to now she was this poor woman, you know, in prison complaining about her conditions, completely leaving out all that she did to get there in the first place. And so it is notable how that's kind of how the coverage has been so far. Now, I'm just waiting to see if we get to hear what she actually has to say and if what she actually has to say includes some of the names of people that she wants to throw under the bus in relation to Jeffrey Epstein, because you would think that she would be getting up there naming names and saying, look, I'm not the person you want to look at. Let's look at this entire roster over here that really made this sex trafficking ring possible. But whether whether or not she does that, I think it'll be interesting to see. Will Will this trial be televised? Is it an O.J. Simpson type affair? I know that there's a lot of push for it. I haven't seen much on whether it will actually be out there in the media yet, but I know that it's going to be one of those things. I think once it actually starts happening, that's when you'll get more and more coverage of it. And if we're, you know, as much as they allow it to be public, then I think that it'll spread more like wildfire, especially than it is right now. Now, for a few hours uh, last week, uh, your president was a woman, Rachel. <laughs> president Kamala Harris, whilst uh, uh, Joe Biden was, was uh, knocked out. Um, how could they tell, as Dorothy Parker said on the death of Calvin Coolidge? But he was out of it. So uh, Kamala Harris was your president. How was that for you? My goodness, I've never seen. I think we talk a lot of times about stories that are blown up and emphasized by the media that aren't stories. And that was one of those that I get this breaking news alert from CNN saying for two hours today, Kamala Harris will be in charge of the U.S. presidency. And I'm going for two hours like Joe Biden's going in for a routine colonoscopy. He's going to be fine. And it's interesting because you can even compare it to last year when Trump got COVID and he was admitted to the hospital. He was at Walter Reed. I was outside covering it. And there wasn't much of a big deal made about the fact that Mike Pence was technically in charge while Trump wasn't able to be. However, you can rely on CNN to take Kamala Harris and to make it such a big deal that for two hours one day we had a woman as our president. It doesn't seem like anything changed, at least from what I can see. We didn't get any crazy executive orders, at least to my knowledge. But she broke the glass ceiling, if only for... Uh, a couple of hours. It didn't do our uh, poll ratings much good. She's plunged from low to catastrophically low, uh, even amongst Democrats. Uh, a tiny number of people uh, have confidence in the job that she is doing. In fact, there are all kinds of reports, aren't there, that uh, Pete Buttigieg and others are really fighting a, a, a battle to try and move her out of the way. Uh, is she fighting back? 
You know, I she's one of those politicians that I will never quite understand. And especially it's been interesting to see sort of the administration and the Democratic Party's treatment of her because they bring her into the office as the vice president and then they give her these impossible tasks saying, hey, you solve immigration, solve everything at the southern border, as if that's something that one person can do, especially someone like her who has no background in that whatsoever. And then at the same time, they also keep up with this negative coverage of her, basically blaming her for everything that is wrong with the Biden administration. It makes me wonder. I mean, Biden just turned 79 years old yesterday. So you're talking about a man in his 80s campaigning for a second term. So the question then becomes, OK, if Biden is already clearly having issues and he's not able to do it, everyone hates Kamala Harris and she's not able to do it, then are they going to try to turn to some sort of third candidate that they bring in at the last minute and say, hey, Democrats, this is your candidate? Or are they allowing, to a certain extent, Donald Trump to come back in? Because the reality is that Trump is great for the Democratic Party because they literally run on being anti-Trump and saying, hey, our candidate isn't Trump. And if their candidate doesn't beat him in 2024, well, then they know that in four years they can come back around and then try again. And what they will do is they will look back to the 2020 election and remember the fact that that was the time when both parties raised more in fundraising for that election than ever before. So at the end of the day, we have to remember their goal is not to make the lives of the American people better. Their goal is to be successful and raise a lot of money, and that's exactly what they did in 2020. Maybe they'll plump for Meghan Markle, princess, <laughs> duchess, uh, former television star of Suits. She's got it all, doesn't she? Well, I mean, hey, if, if Donald Trump can go from the world of you know, New York City, Hollywood, all that, and make his way up to the presidency, then maybe the Democrats are looking around going, well, wait a second, who's who's going to be our person? It doesn't sound like Oprah's going to do it. So maybe, just maybe Meghan Markle will get up on the roster. I don't know that I would bet on that, but hey. Well, she's a very successful social climber. So don't rule it out, <laughs> Rachel. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, you and your pistol have been most welcome <laughs> on the mother of all talk shows. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Paul Moore says, we have no opposition in Parliament. We must reform or reform working class opposition from the street. Well, no sign of that happening yet. Uh, shall, I, shall I take Ian in Hounslow? Yeah, Ian in Hounslow on the Chinese tennis player that I was wrongly calling Feng Shui. It's actually Peng Shui. My apologies, ma'am. Uh, Ian, go ahead. Hello, George. Hi. Um, yes, I've been trying to follow this uh, report about Peng Shui, uh, but it's been a bit confusing, and you seem to have exposed a bit of the hypocrisy from the West, but I still think the, it might be something worth you keeping an eye on because you're not tainted with the rabid anti-Chinese propagandists that um, the Western governments are. Yeah. And if you are... It's all about the Olympics, Ian. It's all, yes. it's all to support uh, what seems to be an impending American boycott uh, of the Beijing Winter Olympics, surely. Hmm. Well, boycott or not... It, it, what matters is whether it's true or not and whether this girl is at risk. We've had individuals around the world being targeted, whether it's Julian, poor Jamal who was murdered, 
um, people like that, and they're on their own. And it's only people like you who can stand in their corner. Yeah, but she seemed perfectly happy, uh, both in the deeply suspect BBC footage, in the conversation with the head of the International Olympic Committee, and at the tennis tournament today. So uh, it looks to me like just another piece of rabid anti-Chinese propaganda, Ian. Well, for a change, maybe I hope that's the case. OK, uh, thanks. That was cryptic. Uh, a new caller, Jean in London. Go ahead, Jean. Hello, uh, George. Yes. Um, I'm, Jean, I'm Jean Jackson. I'm going to the Houses of Parliament on Monday and Tuesday evening to protest against the, the bill that's going through to further privatise our NHS. Good for you. Well done, you. We had talked to Dr Gill earlier about oh, that. Oh, yes, he's a local doctor to me. OK. Uh, tell us uh, what your main objection to the bill is. Well, I'll uh, just give you uh, two examples. I've got um, two GP surgeries in my area have been taken over by um, Centene, an American company. And when uh, my husband was going to the GP nurse every other day to have his foot dressed with a honey dressing, so the weekend come and, of course, they're not open. So we go to the urgent care in a local hospital and they when I observed that she didn't put a honey dressing on um, a nurse came in and said um, sorry we're not funded for that I then told my GP he wanted to know what found out why the company running the urgent care was um, a company called Greenbrook so so that's not my main question, because I know that's all happening. My main question is, what should we do about this new bill going through on Monday and Tuesday? Well, uh, it's uh, extremely moving uh, that you, as a working-class woman, are going to Westminster to protest yes. about it. The problem lies in the lack of organised opposition to it uh, by those that are paid to oppose uh, this true. kind of thing. The so-called Labour Party has hardly said a word about it. The trade unions that are paid union dues by the uh, members in the National Health Service have said barely a word about it. I at least have not heard it. Uh, that's the real problem, Jean. I don't think we're going to stop this bill, but we might no. be able to stop its implementation in its most extreme and ugly forms. Do you think it, uh, when it goes through the House of Lords, they might stop it? Well, the, the House of Lords might put up a better fight than the House of Commons, which yes. is really saying something, isn't it? Yes. Um, oh, God, yeah, I'm, I'm terrified, actually. Yeah. I've got well, it sounds, like, uh, it sounds like you're quite right to be, but well done you for going to raise your voice yes, against it. Just one more thing. Yes. I've got two relations, granddaughter and a sister-in-law, coming as well, and they both vote Tory. But, as, as I keep saying, red or blue, we all use it. God bless you. Steve and Norris thanks, Jean, is a long-time parliamentarian, parliamentary colleague of mine, a minister in the aforementioned government of John Major, and uh, twice 
the Conservative candidate for Mayor of London. Uh, if you want my honest opinion, he'd have been a better Mayor of London than Boris Johnson, about whom I'm about to ask him. He's good enough to join us. Now, Steve, I, I know you're a loyal Conservative, but would you agree with me that events, dear boy, events are beginning to close in on the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson? I would. I think uh, nowadays Conservatives ask themselves, is he a winner or is he a leader? Uh, they can't deny that he won a famous election in 2019, a very large majority, and I think largely unexpected by the public at large, uh, winning, of course, some of those seats in the north of England that the Conservatives hadn't either ever won or hadn't won for 100 years. So a winner, certainly, a uh, man with a unique charm, uh, although I'm, you know, I'm not sure I'm particularly uh, prone to it, but nonetheless, uh, clearly a man of charm. But as far as, uh, well, particularly in recent events, as far as his judgment as a leader is concerned, well, then it's an open secret that many parliamentarians, as well as many, many members of the party, are very concerned indeed about whether he is actually a suitable leader, uh, particularly taking us out of the worst of the pandemic and into the new world after. Well, he has charmed the pants off a lot of people, one of whom allegedly is this woman, uh, Arkuri, who is now cooperating with the ethics watchdog and possibly the police, the Labour Party have this evening, uh, in The Guardian, in the form of the deputy leader, Angela Rayner, raised that very possibility that there is now prima facie evidence uh, that he committed misconduct in public office as mayor of London in affording quite considerable taxpayers' largesse to Miss Arcuri, scratching her back while she was scratching his, as it were. Well, I mean, that may be your opinion, George. Um, uh, scratching the back, I'll have to think about that. Uh, but um, actually, I don't think the Jennifer Akuri story is going anywhere. I mean, people factor that into their view of Boris, as they do so many of the things that might cripple almost any other uh, parliamentarian, any other politician on the planet. Um, it's rather like uh, uh, Trump in that respect, you know, this ability to be able to just ride over uh, all sorts of issues, of which Miss Arcuri is merely one, that would flatten any normal politician and which seemed to rebound from him literally like water off a duck's back. I, I think the more serious issue is, for example, his tendency to, um, you know, to act without thinking, uh, to act without really studying an issue and understanding it, which does cause many in his own party, and I readily admit that I'm one of them, to be concerned about his quality as leader, not denying his popularity as a winner, but the two are, of course, in the end, inextricably linked. You only have to look at the Conservative home table, uh, which is a Conservative home, first of all, as many of uh, your viewers will know, is uh, uh, a table um, compiled 
from very loyal conservatives, pretty much right of center, I would say, but um, be that as it may, uh, who rank every minister from the prime minister downwards. And actually, Boris generally is in the bottom third of that ranking, if not lower. And yet he wins elections and he has a majority of 80 in parliament. That's yeah. the real conundrum. And Angela Rayner, in my view, frankly, um, is probably a godsend for the Conservatives on balance, uh, because every time she speaks, I think a few more uh, people um, decide that maybe if that's the opposition, if you like, if, if she's the potentially the next deputy leader of the government, safest thing is probably to just vote Conservative. Now, uh, of course, events are not just on the uh, on the Kaddish uh, bounder uh, issues, uh, but boundary issues, uh, frontier issues. We have a situation where a conservative government with a majority of 80 seats, in other words, can do anything that it likes, is presiding over the arrival of thousands of people a week on the beaches of the south coast of England uh, and appear to be completely unable or unwilling to do anything to staunch the flow. I mean, I think uh, this goes back, George, as you and I know, uh, not just for the 12 years of this government, but way beyond it. Um, we are uh, apparently unable to do what the vast majority of people want us to do, which is to distinguish between those who have a genuine reason uh, to wish to claim asylum in the UK, uh, or for some other reason, for example, family in the country should be allowed to enter, and those who simply should not be allowed to enter, particularly those, incidentally, who jumped the legitimate queue, albeit considerable risk to themselves, by coming across uh, without any notice or authority, if you like, uh, in small boats. Now, you know, that's a dangerous practice in itself, but it's evidence of the one thing that the traffickers probably say to these migrants, which is true, because they won't tell them a lot that's true, that's for sure. But the one thing that is, is to say, don't worry, when you get there, chances of you actually being sent back either here or anywhere else are very, very small indeed. And of course, we had the recent case of the uh, that appalling business of the Liverpool bomber, um, who turns out to have arrived on a false prospectus, to have remained here on a false prospectus, to have taken years to organise his ability to remain in the United Kingdom, who was never, ever um, uh, uh, sent away from the UK, um, and uh, who, you know, but for, thank God, the fact that his, his, um, his bomb primer exploded, might well have caused enormous, incalculable mayhem. Now, if that sort of thing can happen, you have to ask yourself how many, in how many other circumstances it's happening. But, George, you know one thing, which is this is not easy. Because, for example, it must irritate an enormous number of people when a flight that has on it 15, say, um, people whom the government wishes to expel, uh, many of whom, incidentally, have been released from prison, having served sentences for very serious crimes indeed, or for similar reasons, are then frustrated by late action by 
ambulance chasing lawyers who simply argue that these people must not be must not be expelled from the country now you know uh, the frustration that's there is based on the fact that we have an incredibly fair approach to these issues but perhaps just a little bit too fair uh, and it's about time that we actually said you know look let's be clear what the objective is here it's to separate the genuine from the non-genuine and those who don't have a genuine reason to be here should be sent back to wherever they came well these are a genuine and long-standing uh, liberal arguments the question is can a conservative government with a big majority uh, convincingly make them? Perhaps we'll see in the upcoming by-elections uh, some loss of conservative support on this issue and on the other issues, the sleaze uh, issues and so on. Perhaps uh, the hand of uh, the conservative MPs might be beginning to be pushed well, look, the first thing is that Sir Keir Starmer apparently wouldn't just, um, you know, want to meet the boats halfway across the tunnel. He'd want to go all the way to France to bring him over personally. I mean, Labour's issue uh, uh, or stance on this is laughable and is going to win them no friends. Uh, there may be those who, frustrated by a lack of progress, will wish to move to the far right, to the ludicrous party headed by Richard Tice. Uh, but the reality is that this is a problem which far outdates the 80-strong majority that Boris Johnson has. Yes, of course, I think there is now, George, and the very fact that you're saying this, that there's, you know, there's a very strong evidence that this is an absolutely nationwide, politics-wide um, issue that we know has to be tackled. You know, it's bigger than any individual party. It's not, in my view, caused by the Conservative Party. It's not... Uh, this party, nor indeed the last Labour government's fault that they failed to deal with it convincingly. Now I think people are seeing, as the numbers rise, a need to maybe go far beyond where we've been before. This will apply across the board, and I, incidentally, George, I have not the slightest doubt that if the Conservatives do introduce the kind of legislation that would deal with this problem, that Labour will scream blue murder about human rights and so on. Sure, but the Tories have got the Gatling gun of an 80-seat majority. Many Conservatives will be asking themselves if they've got that Gatling gun, why aren't they using it? Yeah, I think that's probably right. I, I don't deny that. I think that's perfectly reasonable. And we'll see uh, whether or not the government can come up with something more convincing, because so far, of course, they'd have to admit that they haven't. But I just make the point that this is not something which you can exclusively lay at the door of the Conservative government. It was equally a problem that Labour failed to address when it was in office. Um, the urgency now, I suspect, is because the people smugglers, the, uh, the, the criminals who are uh, persuading these people to get into these boats to sail across the channel while the weather allows it, you know, are very much front and centre in the news. And people are, I think, rightly outraged. They do want the government to do something. What will be interesting is if the government does come up with, a, as I say, with a, a set of proposals which will cut across some of our long-held principles of justice, freedom and, and so on, um, just how you know, the opposition, for example, uh, tries to attack it, because attack it, I'm quite sure they will. Steve Norris, as always, fascinating to talk to you. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let's go to Elliot in Florida. Elliot? 
George, uh, I should say good evening. It's probably evening by you. Yes, it's late evening now. And uh, I will concur on uh, the, the praise laid upon your tie. Thank you. It's gone down well. Uh, my wife is very yep. proud, having forced me to wear it. Oh, of course. Okay. Yeah. No, the color color works. The color works. Thank George, you. I haven't talked to you for a while, and uh, I, I want to talk about the the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Yes. And perhaps a, a historical perspective. I I should say first, I have the greatest respect for you, and enjoy your 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 commentaries. I have the greatest respect for Rachel Evans, and in fact. Jimmy Dore, but Jimmy Dore, I felt was, I don't know if you watched a show at all. I think he was off. And I believe that a historical perspective is necessary in this case because it is so divisive in a country that many commentators think are on the verge of civil war. This case, or the idea that he was a vigilante is being dismissed. But in fact, the history history of not only the labor history in this country, uh, but the racial history in this country, that the police are aided by white mobs of vigilantes in their putting down, whether it goes back it can, in labor history, it goes back to the miners, it goes back uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, and throughout the labor history, white mobs. And in the same for the civil rights movement or the racial tensions, there's always a white vigilante mob lynching blacks or or, or beating up people. And, in fact, Rittenhouse was part of that tradition, I believe, uh, of, of joining his compatriots who were there to, uh, to oppose uh, a Black Lives Matter um, uh, demonstration. Now, in the court well, look, that, all, all of that, Elliot, is powerfully argued and, of course, uh, resonates uh, with uh, people like me very strongly. But there were no blacks in this picture. Uh, the people that this man shot uh, were not black, but white. And it wasn't really a demonstration. It was a riot in which looting and burning was taking place. And the jury believed that this man was exercising his right to self-defense in the teeth of that. Uh, these were not labor activists that were doing the looting and burning. Uh, they were something else entirely, weren't they? Well, no. Uh, one of the men that were killed was a personal friend of the black man that was shot 14 times by police that was the prompted the, the protest. So one of the uh, men that Kyle Rittenhouse killed was a personal friend of the black man who had been crippled by the police shooting. The demonstrators were actually driven by police down the down the uh, the avenue towards where these vigilantes were, and there were no police there. As far as the rioting was concerned, Carl Rittenhouse testified that he was taking care, or he was hired to protect the the auto uh, sales place, and in fact, the owner testified at trial to the opposite that he had no contact with him and was not. Uh, did not hire him. So th their whole story, of the story of, of, of self-defense, rides upon technicalities in the minds of uh, people in Wisconsin in which uh, they can construe that two men who were trying to disarm a young man who had been, they had been told, just killed another man, two men who trying to disarm 
the shooter are then killed or shot, and he is uh, he is found not guilty because he's self-defense. It's completely absurd, and the only absurdity is possible in American jurisprudence and jurisdictions. Powerful, par- powerful argument, Elliot. Uh, thanks for making it. Julian is in London. Let's hear from him. Julian, welcome. Hello, George. Hello, hi. Just wondering how the uh, Maxwell case will be portrayed in the press and how much media attention it will get as compared with the, the Rittenhouse uh, case. Well, which has been uh, all according over to yeah, I mean, I formed the impression from Rachel earlier that it might not be such a big deal as you might expect it to be. Perhaps it will be more of a big deal here in Britain. Uh, And uh, there the coverage will be dominated by uh, Maxwell's um, fancy friends uh, who are well ensconced in the British media, if you get my drift. Absolutely. Well, I hope she uh, stays alive to see justice. So far, so good. Uh, No one's... Uh, rubbed her out yet, and you must assume that that's because they have no fear about what she's going to say in the court, don't you think? Uh, Probably. She doesn't walk alone in the woods, does she? No, I I think she's uh, pretty safe because I think they see her as a safe pair of hands. She is her father's daughter, uh, of course. Well, look, thank you, uh, Julian, for the call. Uh, Meghan Markle for president, only 20% of you now think that she should run for president. 80% think that she should not. Don't do it, uh, dear Duchess. I think it might be a humiliation uh, too far. Let me do some social media because I haven't done it justice. Uh, Tony G says, I'm not averse to betting on horse races. One well-known trait in thoroughbred horses is that they can get frightened if they aren't among the crowd. I get the feeling that both Johnson and Starmer were happy as part of the also-rans, but now they're out alone in front, they can't cope. Well observed. Michael Parks says, the cost of having a baby in America is, on average, $22,734. Just think about that. And Rob W. says the average annual cost of health insurance in the USA is $7,470 for an individual and $21,342 for a family as of July 2020. Let's hear from Malcolm in Edinburgh. Go ahead, Malcolm. Hi, George. Just a very quick one. You're looking good tonight, my man. Thank you, Uh, sir. Um, I've been actually watching the Rittenhouse trial with a lot of interest over the last few days. And and I've watched all the evidence from the prosecution and from the defense. And um, it's apparent to me that the the left-leaning media have made him guilty of white supremacy and the fact that the president of the United States, who's not the brightest, he's not the sharpest tool in this shed, has (laughs) accused him of that. He's not. He's a 17-year-old young man he went out there to clear graffiti, to offer his medical assistance. He was a naive, stupid young man that made a mistake. And a jury of his peers found him not guilty, despite the left-leaning media. 
trying to portray him as a vigilante, a white supremacist. He was never a white supremacist. He killed three, two felons and injured another felon. They were rioting. They were burning the city down. He was there to help protect his city. And why have the left-leaning media tried to betray him as a murdering white supremacist? That's my question, George. Thank you. Well, uh, it's uh, well put. Uh, the hour does not allow me to dilate uh, greatly on it, uh, but we're clearly seeing the two sides of this story uh, on the show tonight. Let's speak to Lewis, who is somewhere in the UK. Uh, Lewis, welcome. Uh, pleasure to meet you, uh, Mr. Galloway. And you, From sir? Dundee, actually, your, your home city. Oh, so wow. Especially welcome. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> um, all right. Before I like to begin, I'd like to say that you are among my political heroes in Britain, you and Mr. Jeremy Corbyn. Okay, you Lewis, thank you. My personal two heroes and inspirations in modern Britain. But anyways, um, my main question is, you often talk about um, Trotskyites. And Trotskyites and liberals, yes. Yes, and I would like to ask, what is your particular... What is the reason for your particular distaste or disliking of Trotskyites? Because as far as I'm concerned, it may not be your opinion, but I don't know if it's your personal uh, distaste or opinions on Mr. Leon Trotsky. No, it's it's got very little to do with him, although I strongly opposed the uh, line that he uh, took in the middle and late 1920s. Uh, It's everything to do with my experience of people who call themselves Trotskyists uh, in their work in uh, in British politics and politics around the world. Uh, It's been a very bruising experience uh, for me. I dislike ultra-leftism, extreme leftism, uh, which is what uh, Trotskyists tend to be. I dislike their wrecking activities in labor movement organizations and socialist uh, organizations in general. And I dislike them for another reason, that if you scratch a Trotskyite, underneath you'll usually find a liberal. And if there's one thing I like less than a Trotskyist, it's a liberal. Lewis, thanks for the call. Got to press on because there's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Hello, George. Um, I'm trying to have a stress-free weekend. It's not so easy. Wanna... Not easy when you're no, a Manchester United fan, like me. Oh, did you know that, did you? I'm, um, it's a bit of a shallow call, really. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he left Man United, as you know, yesterday, and it was sad, but I suppose it had to happen. But yeah. I have got a soft spot for him because I haven't had a dream. I don't know if I told you a while back. Um, I dreamt he took me all over Europe and he gave me a lovely time. Um, and it was so he was so good to me that I felt I knew him. I know that sounds silly and it's a dream. But when I look at him now, I think, oh, didn't you give me a good time? <laughs> does your husband know all this, Norma? Yes, he, he does. does now. Yeah, he knows every time I see him, I, I say he's lovely, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, he was uh, known as the baby-faced assassin. 
uh, and he's still baby-faced today. All of us who love Manchester United have a soft spot for him because he provided uh, the possibly the most dramatic moment in the club's entire history when snatching the uh, European Champions League trophy from yeah. Bayern Munich with a last-second goal, yeah. Uh, yeah. and one which was uh, very typical of his style of goal-getting. But he was a disastrous manager at Norma. Yeah, I think so. And they, think they, so, have, yeah. Uh, they have tolerated that disaster for far too long, leaving them now in the situation where, having sacked him, they have absolutely no chance of getting a proper replacement for him. So, well, what have they, they done? They've put his coaches, who share the responsibility for the disastrous state of affairs in the club, they've put them in charge for the rest of the season. Yeah, what could possibly it. go wrong? Well, that's Zidane, Zidane, they think, might come in, don't they? Well, they're hoping for him, but yeah. uh, he doesn't speak a word of English and doesn't seem no. overly keen. You see, the problem now for United is people who do take on that job, Norma, generally don't enhance their CV. Their CV heads mm. south after they leave Manchester United. Mm. Anyway, big up to Judd Trump. He's a champion snooker player from Bristol, not Donald, and he won it tonight. So I and his name up. is Trump. Yeah, Judd, Judd Trump. Judd Trump is he's the snooker 20. champion. Yeah, wow. he, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, Donald Trump will be claiming him as a relative any minute <laughs> now. Norma, thanks for that uh, wonderful call. Meghan Markle has been decisively rejected by our electorate as a potential president of the United States of America. I'm sorry if I didn't get to your social media or as a caller if you didn't get through. Uh, but if you enjoyed the show, come back next week at the same time and the same place and bring another caller with you. By the way, I'm working on a special one-off Moats Extra on the state of football in the country and in the world. If you're interested, let me know. It's been marvellous. Downloads of the podcast, huge numbers, are downloading this week's highlights in the UK and in the US, but also in countries like Japan, India, Denmark, Saudi Arabia. You probably get executed for that. Korea, Switzerland, the UAE, and Hong Kong in China. Thank you for all the great reviews you've been leaving on Apple Podcasts and including this one. In British politics, Mr. Galloway stands as the last bastion of sense. Like a fine wine, he gets better with age. I have been a fan of his since 2002. I would recommend anyone to listen to him. The best podcast around. Thank you very much indeed. That was a touching testimony. Thank you so much. If you do listen, give a five-star review. Why don't you? You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.